It is God who saved us and chose us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan long ago before the world began. It was God who saved us and chose us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because this was his plan long ago before the world began. So whenever God acts, you would expect him to act according to his plan. So when the story of Exodus happens, as we've been talking last week, God is not winging it. (laughs) This is his plan. He has a plan, and he waits for the moment, and when the moment is right, he executes his plan. I want us to see that right up front because it's important that we understand that what God does in the story of Exodus is his plan. He will repeat that plan again and again and again throughout the New Testament. Jesus will come, not out of the blue, he will come as a deliverer from our own versions of Egypt. And then in our lives today, whenever God saves us, it will not be God reacting to something that we've gotten ourselves into. He will never say, what am I going to do now? He will just wait. And then God will execute his plan. He is never overwhelmed. There's a tremendous amount of security in that, isn't there? That whatever is happening to me right now, God is executing his plan. I think he's got everything under control. If you get nothing else out of the morning, try to write that down. God's figured this out. I know this is a Wesleyan church, and so you're in and out of your salvation every 10 minutes, but you might want to write that down. About this time every year, uh, our leaders send us a a form and ask us to report the most vital statistics in the church. Fortunately, we don't have to think about this. They've narrowed that down for us. They've told us that the three most important statistics are the number of people saved or converted, the number of people baptized, and the number of people who joined the church. Now, as I say, we don't get to think about this. Uh, We just count the numbers and turn them in. I have no problem with a couple of these. It's pretty easy to count the number of people baptized. They're the ones that are wet when the service is over. (laughs) And it's pretty easy to count the number of people who have joined They're the ones who came on the platform, we shook their hand, they joined the church. You see, both of those numbers occur in a moment. You wake up that morning and go to church and you are not baptized. When you come home, you are. You wake up in the morning and you go to church, you're not a member. But when you come home, you are. It's that first one that gives me fits. The number of people saved. Because I don't know how to count them. Do we count the number of people who actually said the prayer or made a profession of faith or got baptized or signed a card or made eye contact with the speaker? (laughs) Do we count them or do we count the number whose lives have actually changed? And what do we do with someone who 
prayed the prayer, but their life didn't change. Do, do we have a category for them called almost saved? <laughs> or those whose lives have changed, but they have not prayed the prayer? And what do we do with those who prayed the prayer and their lives have changed but that was six months ago and they changed back. (laughs) Do we have a category called those who were once saved? Those who petered out? And what about those who didn't pray the prayer but they went to a church for a long time and then they went to a camp and became saved? Who counts them? The camp? How fair is that? (laughs) See, what we're learning is that uh, the idea that a person is saved in a moment like this comes more from our past, from a way of reading the Bible, than it comes really from the story of Exodus. When I was a kid, we grew up going to camp meetings. You ever been to those things? These, they bring in some snot-slinging preacher who just goes and goes for like an hour. He's longer than me. But he's more interesting. And at the end of that, there's an altar call. And then people come to the altar. And then they pray. And I'm not minimizing this. This is a product of history. Comes out of the late 17, early 1800s. You tracking? And we weren't aware of this, but while God was doing a magnificent thing in the early camp meetings, Mud River, Red River, Cane Ridge, later on it was Vineland and Landisville, something else was happening to us. We were taking a year's worth of spiritual growth and compressing it into a few days at a camp. Now, we didn't do this on purpose, but it was happening. So that we would leave one camp, for instance, Vineland, 1865, and we would say, next year when we go to Landisville, God is going to be there and He's going to do something even more magnificent. I can't wait. And so people would be like amped up for 12 months. Went to a camp in uh, the Atlantic District up in... New Brunswick, and this is that kind of a camp. These people are like Epcot. I mean, before camp starts, the road that goes into the camp is lined with cars. They're pulled over to the side of the road, and they're waiting for the dude to open the gate so they can, you think they're going to heaven or something. In fact, they call it Beulah Camp, you know? And they say there's only two times in the year, Christmas and Beulah. They they might be listening, so I can say, good idea. (laughs) But do you see what's happened is? There's this high expectation. So when the meeting actually happens, we take a whole year's worth of spiritual growth and we move it into just a few important days. And then we ask people to come down to an altar and to pray a prayer. And then that will confirm or catalyze all of the work that's happening or supposed to be happening in their lives, it's all there right before you in just a few moments. This is not the story of Exodus. Exodus is another story. 
Exodus takes this whole thing called salvation and it stretches it out. Exodus says you are saved and you will be saved, but you also are being saved. That this whole thing of salvation is a long lifetime journey. So when the story begins, we are in Egypt, God's people who went there really because God sent them there. And then all of a sudden there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And when that changed, everything else changed. It's kind of like seeing the guy that you didn't want to get elected president and got elected. So people of God just go, shoot, it's about to be different. Well, it is different, very different. When you get to Exodus chapter 1, verse 11 and verse 13, 14, look at the screen, you'll see what happens. The Pharaoh put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And he worked them ruthlessly. He made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Well, they couldn't take this. And so the next chapter, in chapter 2, it says, So Israel groaned under their slavery and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So God came down and found a fellow named Moses. And he got Moses on the backside of a mountain, and this is what he said to him. He says, I've come down to save them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land. So now go. I'm sending you to bring my people out of Egypt, and this will be a sign that it is I who sent you. What's the sign? When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. A chapter later, God pulls Moses aside and says, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you to let my son go so he may worship me. Because you didn't let my son go, I'm going to come kill yours. Seven times... In the next four or five chapters, the same phrase will occur. Let my people go so they may worship me. Let my people go so they may worship me. So Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says, I've had a conversation with Yahweh. He calls himself, I am. And he says, the I am said to let his people go so that they may worship him. Pharaoh says, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. You're stopping them from working. So the same day, Pharaoh gives this order to the slave drivers. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. So then Moses goes back before the people. And he says, I got good news and bad news. The good news is God is going to bust us loose 
so we may worship Him. The bad news is it's going to take a while. Pharaoh's ticked. He don't want to let us go. So he starts heaping on the work and taking away the resources. Our job's going to get harder, not easier. And the people of Israel get upset. This is what they said to Moses. May God judge you for what you've done to us. When I read that, I thought, you should be saying that to Pharaoh. You should be asking God to judge Pharaoh. But he has put a Savior in your life. And now all of a sudden, because your life got a little worse, you're saying, well, God should judge you. So then Moses goes back to God and he says, this is a very, very rough translation. You said you'd save us, but you haven't done anything yet. In fact, since we started with you, it got worse instead of better. You got a funny way of saving people. No, that's a really, really, really rough translation. I don't think I want to be saved like this. So in chapter 6, God begins to speak again. And this time, He tells Moses what He's already done, and He tells him what He's going to do. What He's already done is, I've appeared to your ancestor Abraham, and I made a covenant. I heard your cries, and I've remembered what I said. That's all in the past. Now here's what I'm going to do. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. I will bring you to the land I swore to your forefathers. And I will give it to you as a possession. There are in fact... Seven I wills in there. Have you counted them? I've highlighted them for you in color, so it'll make it easier. The first three have to do with Exodus. He says to them, I will bring you out. I will free you. And I will redeem you. You might be interested to know that all three of those phrases can be translated and are translated in other parts of the Old Testament with one word, save you. <laughs> Turns out the Hebrews have lots of words for salvation, and these are three of them. So what God says to us, first of all, is whatever predicament that you're in, I will get you out of there. I will save you from that predicament. But keep reading. Because the salvation isn't over, is it? He says, I will then take you to myself to be my people. And I will be your God. Do you hear what's happening here? 
there's a moment where God is not just adopting us. It's a real intimate moment where God says, I will take you to myself and I will be your God. There's something I will do for you and something you will do for me. What I'll do for you is I'll pull you to myself and what you'll do for me is you'll make me your only God. Then afterwards, he says, I will take you into the land I promised you. And I will give it to you as a possession. Do you see what I mean when I say we have somehow thought of salvation in only two ways? We think of it first as getting out of Egypt... And we think of it second as getting into the promised land. But there is this whole stretch in between getting out and getting in where God is up to something, people. He is trying to take us to himself so that he will be our only God. And when he is, then you will know, and not a day before, that he is the Lord your God. Few observations. One is that, did you notice when this long saga began, um, it began as a call to worship. Did you notice this? We are never called out of Egypt until we are called to worship. He never says, let my people go. He says, let them go so they may worship me. All of our spiritual lives is a call to worship. We have to get that right. Because we spend so much of our lives trying to push away from the Egypt that we got ourselves into, we do not think enough about the call to worship. God is not so much calling you out of something, He's calling you to something, and it's Himself. In fact, when I showed the passages on the screens, you'll notice I put words in red. Did you see that? There were two kinds of words that were in red. One of them were a set of words that were uh, slavery, bondage, work, hard labor. Remember that? And the other word that I put in red was the word worship. Let them go so that they may worship me. Do you know why? Because those are the same word. They're at least the same root word. The word to serve as a slave and the word to worship as a son are the same root word. So in some ways... 
The story of Exodus is not just about busting out. If we read it again, the story of Exodus is a story of service and worship. The question that rises early in the book is this question. Who or what are you going to worship? Will you serve Pharaoh or will you serve God? Salvation then, at the very beginning, is an exchange of loyalties. Let's be very clear about this. What God is trying to do with us people from the very moment we get saved is to develop in us new loyalties for Him. Because we had a ton of loyalties in the place where we used to be. So salvation is not primarily exchanging a predicament or a place. It's not God taking us out of hell and sending us to heaven. Salvation is about taking us away from the pharaohs, from the gods that we have become addicted to, and freeing us so we can serve and worship Him as He is. See, it's way more positive. I grew up in a church where they just tried to beat the Pharaoh out of me, man. I needed a vision of worship. And I always thought of worship was like church. They used to say, what are we going to do in heaven? Worship. I'd go, oh, man. And I almost said, I don't want to go. But then I remembered the alternative. Oh, well, it's probably worse. But I don't really want to sit around and, uh, and in church in rows. You know, and sing a bunch of songs and hear a bunch of boring preachers for eternity. Holy cow. That's not heaven. That's purgatory, man. But then when I get into Exodus, I find out that worship is not services at all. It's called a festival. In chapter 5, verse 2, let them go so they can have a festival. And it's called sacrifices. In chapter 8, verse 23 and 24, we need to go into the desert so we can do sacrifices for the Lord our God. And worship is called service. In the book of Exodus, let my people go so that they may serve me, is the literal translation to that. So it really opens the picture for this, but it gives us an idea of what God is trying to do in salvation. He's trying to get us to exchange loyalties, which leads to the next thought. The obstacle for that, what keeps that from happening, is not so much our sins, but our gods. All right, one person said amen, the rest of you are confused or mad. That's two. <laughs> when I say to you that God is trying to rescue us not so much from our sins, but from our gods, some of you hear fingernails on a chalkboard. You say, we don't really have gods. Um, the, the 
The problem in Egypt was that they had lots of gods. Listen, they didn't have idols, but they had gods. An idol and a god are not the same thing. Just because you don't concoct an image and bow down before it as if it were some kind of a shrine doesn't mean that you don't have other gods. It just means you don't have idols. You see, everyone in the Bible who made an idol knew that they made it. They weren't deceived. They didn't build it over months and then step back and go, whoa, how did that happen? They knew how it happened. And then after they built it, they went through an elaborate ceremony where they appealed to the gods asking them to fill up that idol. So the idol became simply a point of access to the gods. So the gods were invisible, intangible, unapproachable, unknowable. But the idol, you could see, you could touch it. It was immediate results. And so people simply made idols and then invoked the god to fill them. So that when they went to the idol, they were serving the god. And uh, Israel never changed gods. They just added them. And they never did this on purpose. They never had a church service and said, we're going to vote on the gods. What they did was they lived in the culture that they lived in for 400 years and when you live in a culture for 400 years nobody needs to tell you to do anything there's a whole religious value system out there certain things are more important than other things and everybody knows it and if they don't they're quickly put down or criticized so you never sit down in a foreign culture and learn other gods you breathe them you just breathe them. And you start explaining all the success that you're having to the other gods. You never say, oh, we don't believe in Yahweh anymore. You just say, well, how did that happen? It's hard work. It's called a degree. It's called discipline. You see what I mean? It's not that you don't believe in Yahweh. It's that you're using every other explanation for the success that you're having. Okay, now nobody's saying amen. So, what do you trust? What do you trust? What do you fear more than anything in the world? Put it to you like this. If you were to lose everything in your life, everybody in your life, but you still had this, 
you wouldn't be happy, but you'd, you'd be okay. Because you'd say to yourself, I'll be okay. What is it, people? What is it? Is it your degrees? Is it your reputation? Is it your marriage? Is it your significant other, your spouse? Is it your body of work? Is it your career? Is it your name? What is it that if we took everything else away from you, but you still had that, you would say to yourself, I'll be okay. And what have you come to love? When you lie in bed at night and the mind begins to drift, or you sit at a stoplight that is interminably long. I can tell you what intersections those are. And the mind begins to wander. Where does it go? What do you imagine when you think about the good life? And say, the people who have that, have it. Is it money? Is it family? Is it health? You know you have other gods on your hand. Whenever you go to explain something and you use virtually every other explanation except Yahweh. That's the tip of the point, people. Because the truth of the matter is the gods are not all in Egypt and they're not all in America. And so what happens in this marvelous story of Exodus is that while God is saving his people from the other gods, the ones that have seeped into their lives through the windows in the night when the preacher wasn't looking, God goes through the process of introducing himself to his own people. <laughs> Great story. This is why he says again and again and again and again and again and again, I am the Lord your God. <laughs> Do you know why he does this? Because nobody in the book knows him. The book begins. He appears in a burning bush. Moses' first words, who are you? <laughs> you don't know? And if I go to your people, Lord, and I tell them, uh, God sent me. And they say to me, what is his name? What will I tell them? You don't know? So Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says... This is what Yahweh said. Let my people go so they will worship me. You know the first thing out of his mouth? Pharaoh looks at him and says, I do not know Yahweh. And I will not let the people go. There it is again. So at the beginning of the book, it turns out neither Moses nor Pharaoh know much about Yahweh. <laughs> 
And so through a series of plagues, God will start targeting all of the false gods in Egypt. It's like a shooting gallery. He's picking them off one right after the other. They worshiped the God of the Nile. They used to say if there were no Nile, there'd be no Egypt. And so the first one, bam, the whole thing is blood and everything in it's dead and stinking. And then he sends plagues to wipe out the vegetation. So the God of Osiris, who would die every winter and come back to life every spring gets wasted by two or three plagues. And then he causes the sun to go dark. It was the giver of all life. And in their darkness and in their plagues, it's as if God is saying, there are no other gods. I am trying to show you not only that I am God, I'm trying to show you the kind of God that I am. You see, people... If you want to learn God, I won't be careful about this. It might hurt some of you, and you'll, you'll write Chris.Williams, collegewest.com. <laughs> you can't learn God in a class on theology. Now, the more theology you know, the matter you are right now. But, but God is not learned in a series of propositions. God is learned in life. If it took theological propositions to understand God, then the faith of a child couldn't save you. But we know it can. And so God must be learned at whatever level one is intellectually, but he must be learned in life. We must step back and say, what is God doing to my life? And we must give God credit, and we must give Him blame. He's not afraid of either one. The purpose of theologians is to come alongside of us and to help us articulate what our hearts are trying to say. There will come a time in your life when God will start identifying your other gods even if you don't know them. I could be wrong about this. There are lots of explanations, but one explanation for what happened to us on September 11th in 2001 is that our enemies attacked our gods. They went after three buildings, people, three institutions the government, the military, and the economy. You'll note they didn't target churches, not even big ones. But if they wanted to take a lot of people out, that's where most of the people are on any given Sunday. No, I could be wrong, but I think they were targeting what they perceived to be the idols of Western civilization. And oddly enough, over the last 13 to 14 years, we have seen all three of these entities stumble. We've seen the government stumble. We've seen the military get into conflicts that they can't get out of. The world is more fragile 
It is not more safe in spite of what the Secretary of State said this week. People are afraid. And this is why we have military all over the globe. And the economy is still stumbling under the recession of 2006 and 2007. And while politicians have offered us every possible course of action, are we not still waiting for someone to stand up and say, people, it was greed. At the root of it was greed. We were pursuing the God of money and success, and it has failed us. I could be wrong, but maybe God was picking off our gods. And instead of humbling ourselves and saying, maybe there is no security in these things. Maybe the military can't solve everything. Maybe there isn't enough money. Maybe the market is never safe enough. Maybe the government isn't the answer. What we have done is we have re-entrenched ourselves and doubled down our effort to make them even stronger. How's it going? My reason for telling you this, of course, is not that I want to preach to the country. I'll save that for somebody with a bigger voice. I want to preach to you because I think that at the same time our country has done this, I, it seeped into us, man. It seeped into us. We breathed it, and we have all run into these things as the next latest, greatest answer. We pursue careers, and we pursue Salary in pretty much the same way that the Egyptians do. I, uh, in my first church, church of 21 people, we were visited by a guy one day, came only one time. Pulled in, sat there in the service. I preached on no other gods before me. When it was over, he waited till everyone left and he said, can I take you out for lunch? I said, only if my wife comes. He agreed, but said, I'd like to drive with you separately. So Lori drove our car to the restaurant, and I got into his car. When I went to get in his car, I couldn't open the door. The passenger's side was all bashed in. He said, you'll have to get in on my side of the car. So he goes, or he opens the door like I'm his girlfriend or something, and he opens the door and has me slide across this bench seat so I can sit in his car. Man, I was creeping out. I said, what happened to your car? Sorry, what happened to your car? He goes, that's a long story. He said, I just moved to Detroit from Minneapolis. I work for Northwest Airlines. He said, I got saved a year or two ago, and I told the Lord flat out that he was important to me, but other things were important too. And he said, I identified them. Note to self, never do this. <laughs> If God's going to pick them off, let him identify them. <laughs> what did you tell him? said, I told him, five things are important to me, God. My girlfriend. I want to marry her. My job. It is my bread and butter. My family. All back in Minneapolis. And my car. I thought, dude, you are desperate. What happened, I said. He said, God was number five. 
He said, just a couple of weeks ago, I got a call that I was being moved from my secure job in Minneapolis to a more fragile situation in Detroit. I had no choice. I either took it or I was gone, so I took it. Girlfriend found out I was leaving, so she left. She said she wanted to date around. Got moved away from my family. I'm in Detroit one day, and some dude rams into the side of my car. I went, well, there's one left. He said, there's one left. In two weeks, God took out all the competition. (laughs) Whenever God does this to us, we can get angry. We can get hard. Pharaoh did that. He hardened his heart ten times. We'll knock Pharaoh. We'll say he was a bad person. But all I know is the last time, the last time God took it out on one of my gods, I was pretty ticked too. See, we never just lay them down, do we? It's always a fight. What I'm asking you this morning is to look over your life. Um, Look at the things that you value, the things that you trust, the things you fear and love. What is your security? And I'm asking you to do the hard interior work of seeing whether or not some of those other gods have crept into your life. Maybe they have. Listen. This can happen to good people, smart people. This can happen to conservative people. It can happen to Wesleyan people is what I'm telling you. Don't be deceived. If you breathe, it can happen. So we must always go through the hard interior work of resisting these other gods and saying to ourselves, I affirm again on this day, there is but one God, and I will serve him only. Now, guess what? You'll say that in a few moments, and then a couple days from now, you'll have to say it again.